In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalm 39. Psalm 39. As you know, each psalm has a title. And the title of this psalm, to the chief musician, to Jetuthan, a psalm of David. Chief musician, many commentators said, refers to our Lord Jesus Christ. And other said, no, chief musician is the leader of the choir of uh, the musician, like uh, Heman or uh, Asaf. Then it's written to Jiduthan, who is Jiduthan? Also, Jodathan was mentioned in the title of Psalm 62 and Psalm 77. So, Jodathan is one of the children of Merari, and he was supposed to be one of the masters of the music, like Heman and Asaf. And he was appointed by David to lead Israel public worship, as we read in First Chronicles, chapter 16, 41, and also chapter 25, from verse 1 to verse 3. Also, uh, Judasan also has another name, Ethan, uh, as we read in First Chronicles 15 and uh, verse 17. According to St. Augustine, the name Judasan suits the psalm. Because Jodathan means overleaping them, overleaping them. St. Augustine says, Who then is this person overleaping them? That's the meaning of the name. Or who those whom he has overleaped, overleaping them? Who are them? For there are some persons yet clinging to the earth, yet bow down to the ground, yet setting their hearts on what is below, yet placing their hopes in things that pass away, whom he, is, whom he who is called overleaping them has overleaped. So Jodathan means overleaping them, so overleaping people who are clinged and attached to the earth. So these enemies who are attached to the earth and were attacking David, David through the grace of God actually overleaped them. And the same true for the children of God. When we are attacked with people persecute us or uh, discriminate against us because we are Christian, through the grace of God will be overleaping them. This Psalm, Psalm 39, is personal lamentation. Sung by someone suffering at the prime of his life, who, feeling the burden of sin, stands in silence, contemplates in the vanity of the temporal life. This Psalm is about perspective. 
as we will see in this psalm, perspective about life, about silence, about speech, about trials, about the true meaning of everything we do and everything we are. Some thought that David gave this psalm to Judasan and his company to sing after he had composed it. But others believed that Judasan himself was the author. However, we reject this opinion because from the title it's clear that David is the author. This psalm is closely connected in thought and language with Psalm 38, that's Psalm 39. And it's very likely that it was written in the same occasion with Psalm 38. So he wrote these two psalms in the same occasion, 38 and 39. Also, this psalm relates to a grievous illness and trouble by which David was afflicted after his sin, after his transgression with Bathsheba. But other commentators think it was written in the time of Absalom, his son, Absalom, the son of David, Absalom's rebellion against his father David. This psalm, like Psalm 38, the psalm before it, and Psalm 40, Psalm after it has been regarded by some critics as the utterness of the nation rather than of an individual. So this psalm expresses the voice of the whole nation, not only one individual. This psalm is a short psalm, only 13 verse, and we can actually divide it into four sections from verse 1 to 3. David's silent agony, from verse 4 to 6, David's wise words, from 7 to 11, a prayer seeking deliverance, and 12 and 13, a humble prayer seeking divine response. So let's start from verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. So David started this psalm by saying, I said, I said in my heart, I contemplated. That's a resolution I made. According to St. Ambrose, the psalmist was talking to himself while he was silent with the wicked. So as if he's saying, I resolve it when I am in front of the wicked to actually uh, be silent. He purposed, he determined within himself to guard his ways. The psalmist reminded himself of a pledge he made to God and to himself not to open his mouth in the presence of the wicked, lest he would probably be stirred up and sin by his tongue, be aggravated, be triggered. Then maybe he will explode in anger and sin more with his tongue. So he said, I will be silent if I am in the front of the wicked. Fearing to talk to the wicked, 
he prefers to endure his tribulation in silence because logic is never accepted by the wicked whose way is violence and oppression and even in psychology and in counseling they say don't reason with unreasonable don't reason you will end up frustrated if you are using logic and reason with people who are unreasonable then you yourself will end up frustrated that's why silence is the way to treat as we said logic is never accepted by the wicked he does not fear the wicked but rather he fears that he himself would probably fall with his tongue and he doesn't want to sin as we read in James chapter 3 verse 2 and also verse 8 if anyone does not stumble in word he is a perfect man able also to bridle the whole body but no man can tame the tongue it is an unruly evil full of deadly poison so that's why he said I said I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me so the psalmist recognizes the words are both powerful and can be used to build up or to tear down our words can either be constructive to others or destructive to others also words can be misunderstood and misused words can solve problems or can create more problems sometimes you intervene and through divine wisdom you can solve a problem but sometimes when you intervene without the divine uh, wisdom you can create more problems the psalms understand that people can easily sin with their words saint arsenius said i talked a lot and I regret it at the end words also can express lies and gossip when we speak we are can we can lie or we can gossip or backbite about others also words can give voice to harsh criticism words can work can hurt uh, in the book of uh, proverbs it says that words can be sharper than a sword can wound other person more than a sword that's why he said i guard my ways as very every good man should in all his actions conduct and conversation he should guard his way how david guarded his way he was going to watch his ways and try not to sin with his tongue in front of people he knew that they did not know God he was able to do this to keep quiet in front of the wicked even when he felt like he needed to express his great difficulties and this explained to us why the Lord Jesus Christ was silent during the trial he did not open his mouth you know during the trial 
Also, he said, I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle. Muzzle is a bridle or strap placed over the horse's mouth to guide him. It was something to bind or fasten the mouth so as to prevent biting or eating. So the meaning here that David would double guard and restrain himself from uttering what was passing in his mind. So he has his mind is thinking and there are words in his mind. So it's not enough to restrain his, his mouth, but also beside this training, he placed muzzle while the wicked are before him. He kept absolute silence, speaking neither good nor bad. Verse 2, I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. So he was silent. That's why inside him, all these thoughts and all these afflictions and all these tribulations and all this hurt, all these wounds, that's why his sorrow was stirred up within him. So as a natural result of controlling any strong feeling, his pain was not calmed thereby, nor even lessened. Rather, it was roused up, hastened, and worsened, as we read in verse 2. So, he was attacked by the wicked. He kept silent, but from within, he, he's upset, he's angry. That's why his sorrow started to increase within him. Yes, he was able to bridle his tongue, but he could not keep his passion inside. So he soon felt the pressure that one feels with intense feeling when we keep silent. It was difficult for the Psalms to refrain from speaking. He become distressed as a fire burns within him, as we read in verse 3. My heart was hot within me while I was musing. The fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. So he was silent, silent, and I'm sure all of us, we experience this in our life. When we keep silent in front of ungodly people, but from within, we start to be, to feel uh, agitated. So at the end, we'll speak, but we'll see to whom David spoke. So he couldn't uh, keep silent. He couldn't refrain from speaking. So when he became distressed, he explained this as fire burns within him. He struggled to hold himself back. But when he finally burst into speech, it is not a speech directed toward the wicked, but prayer directed toward God. And this is a very important lesson to us. When we became angry, agitated from within, our sorrow increased, we should actually direct our prayer to God. As we read in verse 4, 
He started to speak to the Lord. Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am? So the psalmist knows how to make his words most effective. If he spoke to the wicked who do not reason, who have no logic, actually this will trigger more pain and more sorrow. So he decided not to talk to them, but to speak to God, to talk to God. So David's silence was broken in the best way, by humble prayer to God. He would not speak his fears and doubts before the wicked, but he would pour them out before God. And this led him to discover the truth of human life concerning its weakness and shortest span. Although this is a fact well known by all men that our life is short, but there is a great difference between knowing it and living by it. So David asked God for wisdom, wisdom to know the shortness and frailty of his life, that I may know how frail I am. So even if the wicked are attacked me, are attacking me, I should not worry about this, because my life is short. I should worry more about eternal life. I should work more about toward eternal life. I need to forgive them. I need to let go in order to gain the eternal life. So our days are no longer than few hand in God's sight, almost nothing. As we read in, yeah, after he said, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, verse 5, indeed, you have made my days as handbreadth. So all my days before God like handbreadth. And my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is vapor. Vapor. We will actually disappear. We'll live 80, 90, 100 years and then we'll disappear. So that's how he resolved within himself to handle the wicked people and their attacks, to focus on eternity, not to focus on our life here on earth. So the psalmist asked God to make him aware of this. Lord, let me know my end. He begs, what is the measure of my days? David was a champion, an accomplished warrior, a leader, a skilled poet, a musical expert, a survivor, a king. So if any one of us think about himself, none of us is higher than David. But David, in spite of all these things, champion, warrior, leader, skilled poet, etc., he understood that he, like every man, at his best state, just vapor, a puff of steam or smoke. 
That's why knowing the shortness of his life, he can focus his attention not on the things of this life, those material things of the world that come and go easily and will not last into eternity, but to focus on God. That's why uh, he ended verse 5 by Salah. Salah is like a pause to reflect this verse. We should pause after it and reflect and meditate. We should meditate that life will pass away. Things will pass away and days fly by. But God remains the same. God is greater than our lives, greater than this world, greater than even the greatest of anything. God is eternal. And we must give our fragile lives to him. And as I told you, Silah, the idea of this word is pause. And it's mentioned in the Old Testament 74 times. Pause for reflection. So many people think that Silah is a reflective pause, a pause to meditate on the word just spoken. Also, Silah can be musical instruction for a musical pause for the same kind. And here, after verse 5, Silah is very appropriate call for each one of us to pause and think about the shortness and frailty of our life. Verse 6. Surely, every man walks about like a shadow. Like a shadow. Surely, they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. So, this verse, surely every man walks about like a shadow, sounds like the book of Ecclesiastes, which Solomon wrote at the end of his life. David thought about the multitude of people who live ignoring the shortness and frailty of their life. They don't recognize their life is like a shadow or image. Living a life with no substance is an imaginary rather than a real life. In the pursuit of vain imagination, all what we like to pursue if we don't think about eternity, it will be gone completely one day. So all our pursuit is vain because there is nothing real or fitting. Many people are busy here in life, busy for eternal life. For example, they don't have a relationship with God, they don't pray, they don't read scripture, they don't come to the church. And when you ask them, we are busy, but busy for vanity. You know, our life is short, it's like a shadow. So they are busy, but in vain, because they are blind to eternal things. Yes, each of them works hard and heaps up riches, and then he will die, and he doesn't know who actually will gather these riches after him. He dies because he does not think beyond his short and free life. St. John Chrysostom says, 
Riches are vain if spent on luxurious life, but are not vain if given to the needy. Three times in this psalm, David is having to remind himself that man, every man, is empty, is vain, is a fever that passes away. That's our life here on earth. St. John Chrysostom says, Tell me, if we, see, if we see someone chase the wind, attempting to hold the wind, would we not say that he is out of his mind? If we see someone try to hold the shadow, disregarding the actual thing, if we see someone hate his wife and embrace her shadow, or hate his son and love his shadow, would you need further proof for his folly? Likewise are those who greedily seek the existing things that are actually nothing but shadows. Yet, yes, whether glory, glory of this world, power, good life, wealth, luxury, or similar things in this life. According to the words of the prophet, my days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like grass. So the message here, yes, we need to work. Yes, we need to care about our families. But all this with eternity in our mind, thinking about our eternal life. The Gospel last Sunday, if you remember, labor not for the food that perishes, but labor for the food that endures to eternal life. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Under these circumstances, human life being what it is, and all men, all men nothing but vanity. So David is asking, what do I wait for? What's my expectation? What's my hope? Our only hope is God. So this is a cry of utter despair. What do I wait for? But in reality, the psalmist end his complaint by throwing himself into the arms of divine mercy and completely submitting himself to God's will. That's why he said, my hope is in you. After perceiving the shortness and frailty of life, do you remember when I said in the introduction all the sum about perspective? So he reflected on the shortness of reality of this life. David put his expectation and hope upon God, not upon himself. So after he prayed, what happened? Now the wicked are out of his mind. Now he is focused on God's alone. Sometimes when we focus about what ungodly people do for us, we lose our peace, as David in the beginning of the psalm. And he said, his sorrow and his pain within became like a fire. But now after he put his focus on God, he forgot about the enemies. And now he put, he put all his trust and hope in God. David looked to God, not to himself, for deliverance from sin. 
Can you, as the Apostle Paul would later declare in Romans chapter 7 and 8, that the focus should be on God and not on self? So the psalmist prays to be delivered, not merely from his present afflictions by the wicked people, but more importantly, from the power of sin, which he recognizes as the cause of affliction. So David, he understood that the cause of his affliction, as Nathan the prophet declared to him, it's because of his sin. That's why he is asking deliverance, not from his enemies, but more importantly, from the power of sin. As we read in verse 8, Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me uh, the reproach of the foolish. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. So, who are the foolish here? The ungodly. Uh, David is asking God to not let their prosperity and his misery. They are prosperous and he is miserable. Give them a reason to scorn him. Lest they consider that his trust in God and his hope in God of insignificant purpose. David calls the ungodly foolish because though they profess and think themselves to be wise, yet they are indeed fools, as is manifest from their eager pursuit of fruitless vanities. They just pursue the vanity of the world. And from their complete neglect of God and his service, who only is able to make people happy. Verse 9, I was mute. Now he referred back to the beginning of the psalm. I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. So David is going back to the beginning of the psalm where he felt compelled to not speak of God's chastening of his sin in front of the wicked. When he said, because it was you who did it, Nathan actually uttered to David the discipline of God. So David, in his mind, in his theology, in his understanding, that if God did not give permission to the wicked to persecute him, they could not do anything to him. But God allowed them to discipline David, to chasten David. This for his benefit, because the discipline of God is for our benefit. That's why he said, it is you who did it. It was you who did it. That's why I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. Which means he accepted the discipline of God. So why he was silent? Because it was God who was chastening him. God did it. David prayed this prayer from the sense that he was under painful correction from God. He successfully avoided speaking words of self-justification. He did not try to defend himself to, to find excuses. As he poured out his heart to God, 
He also prayed for relief from his affliction without blaming God or accusing God of being injustice or unmerciful, uh, unjust or unmerciful or finding excuses for himself. Verse 10 Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. So David has been experiencing something, all this affliction from the wicked, that he considered a plague, a chastisement or judgment, correction from the Lord. So this refers to the trial which he was then enduring. David perceives that it is from God's hand. This plague, like a blow, it is from from the Lord. And as we saw earlier, it is a result of his sin. David did not open his mouth to complain or to accuse God of unfairness or being unmerciful to him or he justified himself. No. But he opened his mouth to pray that God may take off the judgment that he has inflicted upon him. And in humbleness, he said in verse 10, I am consumed by the blow of your hand. I am consumed. So David asks for help before he is completely lost. David submitted to the will of God. That's why he was mute. He was silent. And to his chastening, as expressed in verse 9, I was mute because it was you. However, that does not take away the desire that the hand of God may be removed, the correcting hand of God, that the suffering that's brought upon him may end. So we can conclude that perfect submission is not conflicting or contradictory with the prayer that if it be the will of God, the suffering and trouble may be removed. As Jesus prayed, if it is your will, take away this cup from me. Verse 11, when with rebukes you correct a man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. Sila. With rebuke you correct a man for iniquity. So David understands that God allows the trials as a mean of discipline, mean of correction for our benefit. The sufferings which God sends on a man are of the nature of rebuke directed to his spirit. They are intended to teach, instruct, warn, prevent from evil doing, as we read in Job chapter 36 from verse 8 to 10. But with these rebukes, the beauty of this person will be like a moth. As a moth destroys beautiful garment, so God's displeasure and heavy hand depressing on men crushes and destroy all which have been their delight and glory. When he said his beauty, you make his beauty melt away like a moth, 
His beauty refers to anything that is to man an object of desire or delight, something I glorify in, something I boast in, whether it is strength, beauty, positions, or life itself. Some may get angry at God when God disciplined them and may question his ways and his wisdom and his economy. But David did not do this. This was not David's response. And instead of getting angry at God, David looks at and considers the nature of the sinner. Surely every man is vapor. So he, he learned a lesson here. Our beauty, our glory on earth can be gone, like moth. So we are all vanity. We are all mere vapor. We are cloud blown through the atmosphere. St. Augustine says, Let him who created me renew me. Let him who create me anew. Let him create me anew through the correction. This is the foremost gift of God's grace to make us confess our shortcomings that whoever good we do and whatever our capabilities are he who glories let him glory in the Lord so we will not glory in ourselves but glory in God and again after verse 11 again it's a pause reflective pause to reflect especially on the word, surely every man is vivid. Verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner, as all my fathers were. So David appealed to God, asking that he answer with mercy, upon him feeling that he is separated from God. While we are disciplined or while we are under the corrective hand of God, we feel separated from God. That's why he said, I am a stranger with you, for I am a stranger with you. I am separated from you. So he said, don't ignore my tears. Don't be silent at my tears. Tears appear to God's mercy in a very special way. God, when he saw the widow at Nain, he told her, don't weep, said our Lord to the widow woman. And to Mary Magdalene, he told her, woman, why are you weeping? Jesus himself, we read in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears. That's why David said, I know that tears appealed you in a very special way. So do not be silent at my tears. Do not refuse refuse to answer me, to speak peace to me. God looks with compassion to the tears of the repentant, the tears of the sufferer, because it is difficult sometimes to find words that can express the sorrow of the soul, so we express it in tears. 
David was not only a native Israelite, but he was the king of Israel. So if anyone had a claim to citizenship, it would be David. He is the king of Israel. But he understand, David understood that his real home, his real citizenship is not the earthly one, but in heaven, not upon the earth. As St. Paul said in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. That's why he said, I'm sojourner like all my fathers were. I'm sojourner, I'm in a journey going to heaven. And we need to understand who are here sojourners on earth. As we say in the divine liturgy, you are in a journey. Our citizenship is in heaven. St. Augustine says, For I am a stranger with you, but with whom I am, am I a sojourner? When I was with the devil, I was a sojourner. So when we drift away from God, definitely we become strangers from God. St. Augustine says, also, what's meant by a sojourner? I am a sojourner in the place from which I am to remove, not in the place where I am to dwell forever. So we'll be removed from the earth here. The place where I am to abide forever should be rather called my home. So heaven is our home. In the place from which I am to remove, like earth, I am a sojourner. But yet it is with my God that I am a sojourner with whom I am here after to abide when I have reached my home. So we are sojourners here until we go home to be eternally with God. And when David said, as all my fathers were, he's referring to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. All the fathers lived their life as men who had no permanent home here, whose whole life, therefore, was an illustration of the fact that they were sojourners. Sojourners means on a journey, journey to another world, the uh, heaven. Last verse, verse 13. Remove your gaze from me, that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. So knowing that his weakness was due to the heavy hand of God upon him, David humbly asked God to look at him no longer with the eyes of correction and to forgive him. When he told him, remove your gaze from me, don't look at me with the eyes of correction. Forgive me. David is asking that God turn his angry, destructive gaze from him. And if God does this, David says that he will regain his strength. He will be comforted that I may regain his strength before I go away and am no more. He wants to be comforted. So in, in conclusion, David is asking for a short time of refreshment, rest, before he is called on to leave the earth and be no more. After being reduced to a moth-eating garment, as he uh, explained before, after trying to hide his pain and chastening by the Lord from the wicked around him, 
by being silent. All David wants is to simply be able to have some rest before he dies. Some interpret verse 13 a passionate wish that God would send him uh, that God would send him help quickly or it would be too late. So when he tell him, remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and no more and am no more means before it is too late. Give me some refreshment and rest before it is too late. So as I said in the introduction, the whole psalm is all about perspective. Perspective about life, about silence, about speech, about trials, about the true meaning of everything we do and everything we are. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.